0: 52 Sketches podcast. Today, episode 11, music producer and music technologist Kelly Snook.
1: Welcome to 52 Sketches, a podcast about creativity and creative practices. Here's your host,
2: Rob Head.
0: Welcome to the 52 Sketches podcast. This is your host, Rob Head. We are here today to chat about living a creative life, the art and science of bringing truth and beauty into the world. So today, I welcome rocket scientist turned music producer, Kelly Snook. (laughs) Dr. Kelly Snook earned a PhD in aerospace engineering from Stanford University and worked at NASA for many years as a research scientist. She left NASA to pursue music production and music technology, working with such stellar artists as Imogen Heap and Ariana Grande. She now teaches at the University of Brighton and is the inventor of experimental digital instruments, such as the Mimu gloves that turn gesture into music. So, Kelly, I am delighted to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
0: Wonderful. So, your background is, shall we say, you know, compared to most of our guests. Unusual. So let's, let's tell your backstory. Uh, It's pretty clear from your academic uh, achievements that you are a science kid. Yeah.
1: Actually, I was always a music kid. I, yeah. Yeah. But I, when it came time to choose what to do with my life, which they make you really feel like you have to know when you're 16, Mm. Mm -hmm.
2: um,
1: I was terrified to do music. I was so terrified that, um, that engineering seemed like the easy way out. So, um, I chose engineering mm. over music and I, I always felt that I was, I was, uh, in a way, um, dodging my duty to my mm. purpose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always, um, I always did keep it, tried to keep a, a little hand in music. Um, even when I was in school, wasn't mm. uh, sometimes more successfully than others, but, um, yeah, really, it was always music that was calling to me.
0: So did you play certain instruments as a kid? I did. Up? I played you played a in lot band of instruments. at instruments.
1: I did. I did all of that. I played the piano <clears throat> mainly, but mm-hmm. then I also played, I went through a series of different instruments before, in fifth grade, settling on the oboe. I, I think I had a stint oh, nice. with the bassoon that was too mm-hmm. heavy, with the cello, <laughs> with the violin, uh, with the baritone uh but i mm-hmm. chose i chose the oboe eventually and the piano was always there but that was back in the days when i thought those were my choices now i didn't know about music production in those
0: days right um, yeah so. absolutely huh it's fascinating i grew up in sort of a similar fashion um and i went to the university of maryland thinking i was going to study aerospace engineering like you did uh, it, but did the irresponsible thing and drifted around and got a degree in dance, <laughs> so, oh, wow! <laughs> but lucky for me, uh, the, the web came along and I was able to make a living in technology, even though I didn't, you know, nobody had a degree in web technology. So it was, right. <laughs> it was sort of free for all, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, so that was, that was a good time. Okay. So, so you, you played all these instruments and you Ended up going to university for um, engineering did music continue to call to you during that time or tell us about your your schooling and, and your early career
1: it really did I uh, when I was a freshman at the University of Colorado I um, I played oboe in the orchestra uh, I I kind of had decided that I was going to do music uh, air quotes on the side and mm-hmm. air quotes um, it, it it wasn't until I was into my almost finished with my PhD at Stanford that I I got this overwhelming sense that it wasn't enough for me to do it on the side but then still thinking I needed to do it on the side I mm-hmm. I did for a very brief moment about a few months before I handed in my PhD. Um, I went and started to look into what it would co- it would take to get a music degree instead of
2: instead of an aerospace <laughs> engineering
1: degree, um, and that just was too at that point it was really too late. So instead, what I did mm-hmm. was I um, <clears throat> well while I was a graduate student, I had also pursued some really interesting musical. Forms. I, for a few years, I was in the Stanford Taiko Ensemble, which is a Japanese mm-hmm. drumming kind of...
0: Yeah, we have a Taiko betre- uh, guy here in, in Ashland, Oregon, who's yeah. really masterful. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it's actually not possible to say whether that's dance or martial art or music. Mm-hmm, it's kind of all mm-hmm. the things together. <laughs> I learned a lot about myself and about it's, the way I think about music.
0: It's the only instrument I've seen where you have to literally train workout to, <laughs> to play. Yeah. That story. yeah. And
1: so I did a lot of my years as, as a graduate student were really focused on Taiko and not on aerospace mm. engineering because mm. the ensemble, the ensemble also was very serious and we would do, mm. it was more than 40 hours a week of, of physical training. And we made our own drums and we made our own, uh, our own outfits, <clears throat> performance outfits. And
2: mm.
1: you know, it was a very, it was a serious practice. It wasn't just it wasn't just a hobby so right um, right you know that i i always uh, more and more as i was going going along in my engineering degree i was trying to i was getting a sense that i wasn't just going to build rockets i was going to maybe try and figure out how to do more and but mm-hmm. it wasn't until i had already been working as a civil servant at nasa for a year that i i figured out how to um buy a buy a proper recording studio, and start learning how to produce music. So it was, you know, I, I had already finished my PhD, I d- in the end, I decided to just get it, because <laughs> I was so close. <laughs> and, um, and, and then, and then figure out how to learn uh, music production, I knew that if I were going to make music the way that I needed to make music, um, I would need to learn the technology. And yeah. actually the thing that yeah. made me realize that was one night um, I came home really late at night and heard a song of Imogen heaps on the radio. And, and it just jolted me into realizing that I needed to be putting energy into figuring out how to make,
2: mm.
1: how to make music. Um, it was, yeah. it, it wasn't a good feeling. It was a kind of a panic feeling. That was actually what caused me to look into what would would it take for me to get a music degree. But the the degree was not the answer, really. It was just putting in the time and the technology. Right.
0: The skills. Yeah. I've had a couple of moments of like where you're just completely arrested by a particular artist. I I remember I had to pull the car over when I heard Tori Amos for the first time.
1: Yeah. Similar with Tori. And around the same time, she was also making music. Uh, yeah, she, mm-hmm. she was putting music, I was late nineties, you know, and a, yeah. st- music was starting to come out that was like, Oh, this is, this is, sounds like what's in me. Somebody else is mm-hmm. making my music. <laughs> my in music, a way yeah. it felt like that, like, <laughs> Oh gosh, what am I doing? Why am I not, uh, why am I not doing this?
0: Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so it sounds like there's sort of a, a a sense of something calling to you, even though you're, you're doing, you're living a life that that most people would find, you know, at the sort of peak of our society, you've done the right thing, you've gotten all the degrees, you're working at NASA, you could, like couldn't be, you know, more responsible and more uh, contributing to society in the, in the way that we normally frame that. And yet it sounds like something. Yeah. So w- would you describe it as a calling or, or I mean like how?
1: Yeah, very much so. But it was one that I was trying very hard to ignore in terms of hmm. a profession because you know and part of it was a response to the completely inappropriate way that society handles art and music and you know I wanted very very much to be creative and for my life to be about music but I didn't want it to be about me and it mm. was it's really impossible to separate those those things in the traditional music industry music industry mm-hmm. is about glorifying individuals and yes, yeah. and people and their image and their bodies and and it's so materialistic that i couldn't see a pathway for uh, for uh-huh. leading a life that was supported by a profession in music without succumbing to what i saw as just a completely inappropriate music industry Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I couldn't reconcile those things, so it was very much this calling that I needed to ignore, mm-hmm. or or do on the side, or so. like it was very confusing for me until a pretty specific moment a few years later that I had I started to have a, an inkling of what it really looked like what the calling really was. It definitely Mm. isn't being a rock star, or being a concert (laughs) pianist, or those things that I, that's really all I knew when I was a child, you know, I, if I were going to go into music, it's either like, being a performer or being a recording artist or being a, uh, you know, I don't Mm. know, being some front and center stage in a performance uh, situation.
0: Right or, right. or
1: playing in an orchestra, an ensemble or something. Uh, you know, yeah. those were, those, to me, that was what it meant if I were going to do music.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned um, Imogen Heap, and and the first time I heard of you actually was from, I think, a mutual friend that lives in Palo Alto, uh, and they mentioned that it, maybe it was Imogen Heap that lured you away finally from NASA? Is that it right? was,
1: yeah. It Tell was. Tell us that
0: story. Yeah. How did you make that transition?
1: Yeah, so, um... You know, as I had explained, Imogen Imogen's music had a really big impact on me in that critical time when I was doing my PhD. It was her first. It was her first album, really. I don't really actually listen to music very much, but I listened to that pretty pretty obsessively. And then, kind of got busy doing other things for many years, and I started producing music uh, on my own. And, um, and while I was working at NASA, and so we could just cut a few to eight years later. And by this time, I'm in Washington D.C. My studio's there. I've been I've been producing music for a few years, with independent artists. And um, were I was you working watching, at
0: Goddard Space Flight Center? At the I was. Time, I was working yeah. at
1: headquarters and at Goddard both hmm. uh, when I was hmm. living in what D.C. and I see. And I, I was just watching a movie, and at the end of it was "Let Go," the, the song "Let Go" that Imogen did with Guy Sigsworth in, in their duo called. Fru Fru, and I was just jolted back into oh my gosh Imogen Heap is still making music of course she is and wow (laughs) this is incredible and then I realized because I had been producing music for so long that what I loved about one of the things I loved about Imogen's music was her production and also Guy's production Guy Sigsworth's Mm. production Mm -hmm. and now that i had been producing I was listening to music in a completely new way and I got in touch with Guy Sigsworth um at that moment just to tell him how much I love his production and to Mm. um I don't know, just to yeah, just to let him know, and he wrote right back because he was he was really a NASA a NASA nerd as well, and so he mm-hmm. and I started this pen pal relationship for the next few years. That was oh, that's fantastic. Where, you know, I would talk about space stuff, and he would talk about music stuff, and he, you know, I learned a lot about <laughs> string production from him. And you know, I would I would just send him an email like, "How did you get this? How did you do this string build?" And this I started listening to all the other artists that he produced, and um just with mm, producer's ear and and so it was really through Guy's influence on Imogen's music production and Imogen's also Imogen's production
2: mm-hmm. that
1: drew me back to pay attention to what she was doing because I hadn't really I wasn't, you know, listening to music. I wasn't other than the music that I was producing. I was just it was enough for me to just work at NASA and, and, and make my own music. So mm. I, I hadn't been really listening a lot. And right. then so then at one point I was asked to give a talk in Japan the the association for Baha'i studies in Japan asked me to invite me to Japan to give a series of public lectures about the um, history of space science and hmm. astronomy on our collective understanding of ourselves. And so at this point huh. I was living in DC. I was, I was, um, or it was maybe it was just before I had moved to d c but I was working at NASA, I was making music, but I wasn't really thinking in the biggest possible picture about about what what was you know w- what was the relationship between what I was doing and the history of human thought you know that's, a, <laughs> that's the biggest possible question, and I was so daunted by this invitation, right. and I felt so you know imposter syndromey about it that mm. I I started reading and reading and studying for this for this tour because i mm-hmm. didn't even I hadn't even really even thought about the history of space science and astronomy uh, and the impact on collective human thought so yeah
0: <clears throat> I, so, I, um, you immediately remind me of uh, Carolyn Porco uh, and yes. her work the the pale blue dot that image mm-hmm. and what it says about humanity and
1: yeah I mean I had place. been. I had been thinking a little bit at NASA because we were, you know, I was working on strategic planning for the agency and, you know, so in, in some sense I had, I was familiar with NASA's strategic plan, which always has these really lofty things like an improve life on earth. Every, every goal or whatever mm. ends with something lofty like that and improve quality of life for mankind or something like that. But, um, oh, right. but really like, Oh, throughout all of history, I didn't really know much about history. And so, I was reading, you know, in studying for this, preparing for this trip i was I was reading kind of normal history of science stuff, but then I also started reading the Baha'i writings about, especially Abdul Baha's writings about um, about the history of science. And there is mm-hmm. a little bit in his writings about this. And mm-hmm. Abdul Baha, in one tablet, mentions the so Abdul Baha is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, and he was at, he was talking at one point about um, about the worldview, uh, the understanding of the sun being at the center of our solar system, and how that wasn't mm-hmm. always the case, and how the very early Greeks actually knew this, and for example, uh, Pythagoras and and those mm-hmm. people during that, and then it's kind of debated, but. Abdu'l-Bahá said that this was known, and then mm-hmm. Ptolemy, Ptolemy proposed a different a different idea, which was that the earth was at the center of everything. And mm-hmm. Ptolemy um, like put out an actual written thing that started spreading, and that worldview, that the earth was at the center of everything, then became the mm-hmm. worldview that was infused into everything. He had the publishing
0: yeah, advantage. Yeah, <laughs> so he because
1: he published it and also had good arguments for mm-hmm. why it was that way. That's what took hold for the mm. next fifteen hundred years, and it wasn't okay. until Copernicus came along and proposed. Again, that the center that that the sun Heliocentric, was eccentric. Yeah. Right. And so Abdul Baha actually had a tablet where he spoke about this. And I started thinking about that, like, oh wow, yeah. That's a huge misunderstanding and a mistake in knowledge that was propagated for fifteen hundred years and it cost many people their lives in trying to right that wrong. Mm-hmm. And um and it was only Kepler really, and that was when I re-encountered the work of Kepler, because Kepler looked at at was the first person to uh, figure it out mathematically, to prove Copernicus's theory mathematically, to really figure out the mathematics behind how the solar system works. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. I didn't know, I knew that part because I was an engineering student, and of course we learned Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. But at that point, what I I was face-to-face with in preparing for this talk was that Kepler figured all of that out through music and uh-huh. through a spiritual conviction that God's organizing principle was harmony and so uh-huh. using harmony the spiritual principle of harmony and the and the best data that existed in the moment and insisting that the observations matched the, the mathematics it was only through all of, doing all of those things together and using musical principles that he made this that he essentially launched modern astronomy so uh-huh that was the moment where i was like why are we not using music like this right now <laughs> why why are we just playing with it like it's a toy why aren't we using it to understand our universe hmm. and that was the beginning of my real like the light going on like this is where this is where the purpose is for me this is where hmm. it's like figuring out how to use music as a tool to understand ourselves and to understand the universe and and so that was the beginning of this um, project that I'm so, still working on. That was that was 19 years ago. <laughs> that was 2001, and I'm still starting on this project to build <laughs> to build a musical system that allows us to uh, learn about our our realities but um yeah that was that was right. really so that was how did you go from me. that
0: realization to to getting uh, pulled away away from right NASA okay and, so right
1: yeah. okay so so that so that was 2001 so by by 2008 i was really itching to try and figure out how to do this how do i how do i how do i figure how do i build essentially build a model of the solar system that's playable as a musical instrument where i can learn about the physics Hmm. Um, I didn't know how to articulate it that way. I had no idea really what it was that I wanted to do, but I knew it had to do with using music as a scientific tool. Hmm. Um, and I knew that in order to do that, I was going to need to learn some new technological tools because at that point, all I I could program in Fortran 77, that was all I knew. (laughs) Um, and that was not going to be enough to do, to do what i wanted to do yeah
0: for our and kind s- listeners who who aren't software developers uh, <laughs> fortran is a is a rather uh, antiquated programming language that doesn't get uh, a lot of new development these days <laughs>
1: nasa still uses it now but uh, but um you know there was a lot going this was now 2008 and you know that was an explosion in 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 um, programming tools and computer mm-hmm. digital mm-hmm. tools and did, you know, yep. internet of things being born and and that sort of thing. And I knew that I needed to figure. I needed to learn some new tools, and so I I applied to NASA to send me to the Media Lab. There was a program called Innovation Ambassadors, where they were sending people from NASA out into the world where there was innovation going on to figure out how to be innovative and bring that innovation back to NASA.
2: Mm. So
1: I used that as an opportunity to apply. To be an innovation ambassador, and um, I went to the MIT Media Lab for a year. So this was, of course, really one of the biggest turning points of my my life and my career because I had an opportunity to just be it in this incredibly, incredibly innovative place for a whole year with no other uh, requirements of me that I then that I understand try and understand what makes it innovative, and mm. and that was when I. Had time really to, um, to watch Imogen's video blogs, and she, in her video blog, she was talking about how she had this studio, and she, but she wanted to go on tour, and she wanted, she needed someone to help her look after her studio, and I, you know, I saw in the background all the equipment in her studio, and it was all the same equipment that I. Used and new, including like in fact the same brand of microphone, the same <laughs> software, the same you know, and that I had yeah. just spent the last eight years teaching myself.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so um, I wrote to Guy at one point, and um, and you had already
0: him, had an established and and I, by
1: then I was like for three or four years Guy Guy and I had been exchanging emails, so I I just wrote to him and said, hey, uh, do you have images? email address. And I, I, I wasn't planning on actually contacting her. I didn't feel ready. I hadn't done Uh anything musically that at all represented my own, I don't know, my own creativity or my own voice at Uh all. I wasn't, but, but, um, you know, I, I was also feeling embarrassed that I, Uh that I was so shy. So I said, okay, well, I'll just get her email address. (laughs) And then at some point when I'm ready, I'll contact her. Well, Uh I wrote to guy and then the next morning when I woke up, he didn't just send me her address. He, he like introduced me to her over email and she wrote back, had written back before I woke up. So (laughs) I was kind of forced
2: Uh... into,
1: into corresponding with her. And so I, I just kind of suggested, well, maybe I could help you. And you know, who, who was, I wasn't in the music industry. I wasn't any, anybody, but, um, but she was like, oh yeah, maybe that would be good. And she came and visited me at the media lab and, you know, I introduced her to some of my friends that were doing really cool things. She was looking for new ways to interact with her music on stage, new technologies.
2: Uh And
1: uh one of my friends at the media lab or two of my friends had created this glove that you could, you know, you could grab a note while you're singing and manipulate the note. And she just, she saw that and she was so excited about the possibilities for her own music Uh with a glove. She was like, Oh, that's what I need. She immediately went back to the UK, started working on it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Meanwhile,
1: I was still at the Media Lab and then went back to NASA for a few months. But it was really at that time that I understood that these technologies that were being developed and these tools that we have uh, in, in music are actually, they're the same tools. It's it, it's, it's like it's kind of agnostic, whether you want to use technology for science or use it for communications or use it for music or use it for visual arts. Like the technology is the, is technology, mm-hmm. and really it's just technology to enable human creativity, whether that's in the sciences or in the arts or in exploration or whatever it is. Right. And you know, it it's not really very much of a leap to go from working on technology for science to technology for music. It's really not a leap at all. It just mm. in our world, the world makes it seems like seem like it's a leap, but it's not at all
0: a leap. Yeah. But, you so mentioned, very, an, yeah. yeah, you mentioned in an interview that I, I saw on on YouTube that the pace with which things develop in the two worlds are are dramatically different. So obviously, doing government work at NASA, where uh, you know my understanding is y- y- you feel lucky if you do two missions, you know, in your career, uh, right? Versus yes. you know, versus yeah. the uh, the art world where you know uh, an artist might say uh, okay we're gonna build a glove and 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 i'm gonna be on stage with it in six months you know (laughs) go no it was
1: one month it was not six months (laughs) it was you know it was a ridiculous amount of development in a short time with very high stakes and not Uh no testing that Mm. that was the yeah it was it was a completely different pace honestly Uh, i'm much better suited to that faster pace but it certainly is nerve-wracking and 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 very very um stress inducing. So but, did she pull you is, into
0: the glove project? Is that how you ended up in her studio?
1: Well, she got the idea for the glove project while she was visiting me, so I kind right. of pulled her. It, either way, it, it, it that was where it was kind of the idea of it was born. She and Tom Mitchell started working on it. Uh, even before I got there. But I went soon after, not just to work on the gloves, but she was working she was starting a new project. She was starting her Sparks album, which is essentially thirteen completely different projects. Hmm. all it was like a project album. So each song is a project. and it was only one song on that album that was the glove, the glove song.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, it was called uh-huh. Me
1: the Machine. But for that song, she wanted to completely write record and perform a song with gloves, which is like whole different technology requirements for those things. You know, performing is one thing, but creating is a whole different, it's almost like a different set of requirements for that technology. Right. And so we started, we did start immediately, you know, she and Tom had already started looking at gloves and one of the first packages to arrive at the house where I was living next door to her when I got there in 2010 was the 5DT glove that we started with, which was an off-the-shelf glove that you could buy. So we started kind of low-key at the beginning. It was only mm-hmm. one of the many projects. And since I was her musical assistant, I was her studio manager and musical assistant, I was really, really consumed 24-7 with supporting all the different projects. I mean, one right. project, just to give you an idea, one project involved traveling to China for two months and setting up a, a recording studio and and completely writing and recording a song from different places in Hangzhou mm. in there in China so that's just an enormous undertaking to, <laughs> to ship an entire studio's worth of gear so that Imogen can write a, record and write a song in China you know so mm. the, these were not small, projects. So we weren't just, wasn't Imogen just sitting in her studio creating in with, you know, with the tools that she right. had. She was crowds right. She was one of the first people to crowdsource. The first song was completely crowdsourced from, from people from around the world, sounds from around the world. And
2: oh, she, she see, made yeah. the
1: first song from that, you know, and all of those were pretty ahead of their time in terms of using technology to, mm-hmm. to, to get participation from, from people, and.
0: So, no. so at that it point, you're working full time for for Image and Heap.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And and what year did that transition happen?
1: Well, I kind of we decided to test things out. There was a lot of other stuff going on. My husband is Brit. My ex-husband, who was my husband at the time, was British, and his mother lived in England. There was some medical stuff going on, so I took some medical leave from NASA at the beginning and went to the UK to just test out whether Imogen yeah. whether that would be a fit. Even uh-huh, whether it would uh-huh. be possible to make that that uh-huh. leap. So there was 2010 was an experimental year, and the main project that I worked on with her during that during 2010 was a big performance at Royal Albert Hall with a crowdsourced video project uh, with an orchestra and a choir, which
2: uh-huh.
1: culminated in October. And then I went back and just had to decide. Um, I went back to NASA for a few months to just make the decision, like is this something that I'm going <laughs> to really do? And, and
0: how did you feel about <laughs> that? I, did you, did you still feel yeah. like, well, that was crazy? And, or, or did you feel like, oh, that's definitely what I need to be doing?
1: No, I, you know, I thought that, I mean, it was pretty obvious that it was definitely closer to my, to my purpose, but mm-hmm. I, it was also way harder to leave NASA than I thought it than i th- ever thought it was gonna be it was really really hard for me because a lot of my identity was wrapped up in at more than i wanted ah, to admit yeah. mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. wrapped up in being an a scientist and yeah. you know yeah. and it's a very secure job you if you're a civil very. servant you're n- you know yeah. that's not something that you leave you know
0: mm-hmm. um mm-hmm.
1: it's a job for life really um
0: yeah if you i i worked at Goddard for a, a summer, but uh, between high school and college, as a, and, and an internship, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I noticed is that it's almost a, a just a standing joke with everyone. Everyone is planning to leave NASA, but never does.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's you know I didn't expect it to be so hard, and and it it wasn't because. I don't know why. I don't know why it was so well hard, it's a but stable
0: job and you know, it's a good salary. Yeah, I mean you know, people you know, like my friends and at
1: Na- yeah, my friends at NASA and were like,
0: so do you have a work?
1: contract? And and I was like, uh no. Anything in writing? No. Do you have a uh, insurance? No. <laughs> like no. I was basically leaving everything stable everything yeah. stable and going into completely into the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was forty one, you know, it wasn't like I was that young. Right. Um, right. And it huh. was, it was, um, yeah, it was not a, was not, not a, a, a safe bet. No, it, there was nothing safe about it. And I'm not ever, I wasn't ever one that I really needed a lot of safety, but this was, this was unsafe even for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and honestly, yeah, it yeah. was as hard as, I mean, the fear was very important and, and real and mm-hmm. it turned out to be worth, like, it was actually everything that I was afraid of
2: mm-hmm.
1: was, is something that happened. And it was mm. really, really hard. So it wasn't like yeah. it was unfounded fear or it was just, it's right. like, there's a reason why people don't do this. It's really, mm-hmm.
2: really <laughs> hard.
1: <laughs> it's yeah. still hard. I'm still yeah. feeling the impact of it mm. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hear that. So, yeah, it definitely this wasn't. A... But that's how, that's how I got to, into yeah into this so
0: talk to me about how i understand that there's a glove project called mimu is that right
1: mimu me, Mew. Mew me, mimu
0: okay mimu me, yeah. tell us about that is that is that has that reached productization is that yeah. uh, an ongoing okay yeah. great
1: yeah so so what we started then in 2010 then it became it started to become very clear even in those first years 2012 was when we did the the big she did the big performance in 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 uh, her in her garden in a big dome that she built with it was streamed to one and a half million people <laughs> with, the, with the gloves um that yeah. was the that was like the very the that was when things were starting to develop but we realized very early on just by the number of invitations she was getting to speak at wired and ted yeah. and you know <laughs> that this was something that lots of people were going to want and so
2: mm-hmm.
1: at some point we had to start transitioning our thinking from okay what does Imogen want and need to what would make this a powerful tool for anyone Mm -hmm. and how do we make it affordable and accessible to anyone? Because it's not hard to make something, especially now, like the tools are, are so Mm -hmm. it's, it's really easy and possible. If you, with a little bit of effort, you can really make anything you want, but to make a product that is going to be robust enough and general enough for a wide variety of people and to make it available off the shelf Mm -hmm. is is a completely different ball of wax right and so we we it took us a long time to transition from a little project a little scrappy project team to a little scrappy startup we're still a little scrappy startup but we (laughs) but we definitely you know we've had a pretty slick website that and you can go and you can pre-order your gloves they're still unfortunately pretty expensive because we're Mm -hmm. still right at that edge of being able to manufacture them and making them by between somewhere between making them by hand and manufacturing them. The pieces now we can have manufactured, but we still have to do the final Assemble, assembly by hand.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, hmm. and, and, and really we're a hardware and a software company. And so we, we have, we have a hardware product, but we also have a piece of software that works with lots of different hardware. And hmm. so we're trying to, you know, we're really, um, every year we're getting closer to a proper company with proper uh, marketing and proper, Uh, um, you know, management and, and proper, uh, everything proper. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it has taken us 10 10, 10 years to get there. Um, -hmm. so it's not like a fully mass marketed thing that we can just like license out to someone or sell. And we've never wanted to be the kind of technology company. For for many, many years, our our business structure was as a nonprofit, which is really unusual for a tech company. So we've always just had the vision that we want to transform the way music is made rather than make money. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Mm the goal has never been to create this piece of technology, build a company, and then sell it. Which right. is what a lot of software and hardware companies do, True. and we've been a, we've had a completely different mindset from that.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: haven't even wanted to take investment from typical investment sources, so we've always been in this um, minimum st- kind of struggle for uh, for for funding and and
2: mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. barely
1: making it. Uh, uh, but that's all in order to hold on to. I think the the values that we collectively hold as a, as a team,
2: right. we're still
1: very small. Uh, but I think, I think it's, it's gradually now changing and more people are coming on board and, we're becoming we, we, we actually had the benefit of being very widely recognized very early on before the technology and it really was ready for that kind that level of recognition. Mm-hmm, we had so mm-hmm. many people that wanted to buy gloves when Ariana took them on tour, for example.
0: Yeah, tell us about that. What when was that and, and how did that happen? How did you end was, up under the stage at an Ariana Grande concert?
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was in twenty fourteen we were um, Building our first round of gloves that we had sold to um, a small number of, of backers that we had found in a in a Kickstarter campaign that we ran,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and so we we were making it was a very small it was like seventeen pairs of gloves that we were making, mm-hmm. and around the time when we were figuring out how to assemble all those gloves. Uh, in Imogen's barn, um, uh, Ariana came through town, and Ariana was a big fan of of Imogen's, and she uh, and so Imogen huh, invited that's her surprising. for dinner. I know, right? <laughs> no, I, I I totally get it now, but she yeah. was a really huge fan of Imogen's, and mm. so Imogen invited Ariana around to the barn, or to the house for dinner. Ariana saw the gloves. Ariana really wanted a pair of gloves, and so since we were in the process of making them, we we decided to make a pair for Ariana and so she came back round through town around Christmas time that year Uh, and um, what's when we were in the barn really really working on making them happen and she came to try them on and when she tried it on, she decided, oh, I really want to take these on tour. But her tour was starting like two weeks later. It was so crazy. <laughs> uh, and and so we really had to scramble, first of all, to just get the gloves finished, but then also to um, figure out how to support that. How do we support her taking this experimental technology on this world tour? It was her first tour, the honeymoon tour. Mm-hmm. It was it was starting in earnest, I think, in in February. Uh, late okay. February, but the rehearsal started literally two weeks later from mm. th- when she came to try them on. Right, And so, you know, all of us were working other jobs at the time. We weren't, none of us was working on Mimu M- full time. In fact, mm-hmm. none of us ever has worked on Mimu M- full time. Uh, right. This is a company after 10 years where nobody, yeah. we've never had a full time
2: employee.
1: Wow. Um, and I was the only one really in a position to. Be able to leave what i was doing and go help get her set up and we had to we had to come up with all sorts of new technologies very fast and i i worked with my friend ben bloomberg at mit to build a system that would work on the big stage uh, with the gloves a communication system uh, for the data and he he was such a rock star as well. And just getting that ready in, in a matter of a week, he had put together this stage ready data transmission system. Um, hmm. He's now, by the way, he's um, nominated as the producer of Jacob Collier's um, best, record, uh, Grammy, wow. best, re- best record Grammy, best best record Grammy. Now uh, he's just a tech, tech genius. Um and just hmm. an amazing amazing you'd guy, have to but... be a
0: tech genius to to be able to contribute anything to jacob collier he's right pretty, I he's know. pretty good at the studio no, yes. <laughs> i mean i don't know if you've seen
1: jacob's um uh, looper work with on um, his looper but ben built the looper and just does oh, all of cool. his life sound and anyway he's yeah. He's...
0: i just had seen um jacob collier giving um a peek into his studio and his his oh, uh, production process. He's oh, yeah. pretty savvy with Logic Pro. <laughs> Let's just oh, say, yeah. you know. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's
1: he's they're both geniuses. But yeah, anyway, Ben is yeah. a friend of mine from when I was at MIT, mm. and um, at the Media Lab, mm-hmm. and so yeah, he helped in that in getting the the system ready for Ariana, building the rack that we used, and you know, really. Making mm-hmm. it possible to take these on the road, but it was it was touch and go. You know, every performance, I was a real nail biter. But, <laughs> but we never had a failure in eighty five shows. We never had a failure of the technology, which oh, is fantastic. really remarkable. That is, uh, but it was yeah it was uh... all
0: the nines, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic. So, um, how does your MIMU work relate to your uh, professor? Ship at uh, University of Brighton. Do you do you create instruments there? Do you manuf- do you explore there? Do you experiment there, or is there some? Are they totally separate? How does yeah, that
1: work? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I I I was on tour with Ariana, and then that that tour ended a, earlier than we thought it might. Um, she just was ready to move on to other th- to other things, I think, and mm-hmm. um, and so I was then faced with having left my what are all the stuff I was doing to make money mm-hmm. uh, in the UK? And so when I got when the tour was ending, I was I needed to find another job, and and I applied for a couple of academic positions. I almost mm-hmm. didn't apply for uh, for this the job at uh, University of Brighton because actually the job that was posted was like a I don't know head of head of school job, and I wasn't really interested in running a school, but the, the Dean asked me to apply anyway. And then she used that, that application of mine as, as a way to get me in as an independent um, uh, uh, adjunct professor and the UK adjunct professor is a different thing. It really meant that I was a full professor, but, but part time. So it allowed Mm. me, and she wanted me to build a fab lab essentially. She wanted me to build Mm -hmm. a digital fabrication lab, yeah so that um the school of media could get into um uh, well at least in my interview, I talked about how that really spawned innovation at the at the media lab and how important it was for people to be able to test their ideas out and build them and you know and this was at a time this was 2015 so people were really starting to get interested in things like projection mapping and all these technology building instruments and new instruments and controllers and you know sensors and I don't know, all technology embedded in in clothing and all of these things that the media, Mm, school media wanted to get into. And, um, and so she hired me to build a lab, but as a, and as I started getting into that, I started to find a lot of support amongst my colleagues at the university that I wasn't expecting for Mm. the Concordia project. So this, this project that had been brewing in my mind since, since, and, and it was really during the tour uh, during, during my tour with Ariana and just before applying for that job at Brighton that I decided, okay, you know what? I am just going to do this. I'm going to make this the <laughs> thing, my thing. I'm going to make this an actual project. But I had no idea how to do that or even how to articulate what it was that I wanted to do. And it was starting yeah. to get clearer, but I just decided that I was going to put my energies into writing grant proposals to be able to build Concordia. It didn't even have a name yet. It, the, the name Concordia didn't exist. Um, that was Mm -hmm. the beginning of me getting serious about trying to figure out how to make Concordia my main thing,
2: Hmm.
1: but it was still, it was low key in my mind until people at the university started really encouraging me to talk about it and do things. So then I started thinking, okay, well I'm going to build this lab to have a focus on immersive media so that I could use Concordia as a flagship project for um, you know, for what's what it possible is, there, what's yeah. possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that was really, when I started, I got invited to give a talk about Concordia in one place. And once that happened, I started getting every time I would give a talk, other people would invite me to talk about the project. So the project didn't exist yet. But I started <laughs> traveling all around the world talking about it. And it was just in speaking about it that it started to take shape. And, um, and that, you know, that was the beginning of Of where i am now where that's really my main my main project i do i'm working on Mimu, but memu for me is a is a piece of the larger puzzle of immersive interactive um uh data sonification essentially like Mm -hmm. gamified way of exploring realities uh where you're immersed in some reality that you want to understand and you understand it
0: yeah explain data sonification yeah. What What do you mean?
1: Yeah. So this is. I, I started to get it early on. I got a sense that this was part of what I needed to understand. So that was. So when I went to the Media Lab in 2008, was when I really started um, getting involved with the data sonification community. So if you know what data visualization is, which pretty mm-hmm. much everyone mm-hmm. know, can 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 imagine, data visualized graphs and charts because and we deal with that and... all the time. Yeah. And we've been doing that for hundreds of years. So really, sonification is. Data visualization, but using sound instead of visuals. So, taking any kind of uh, mathematical or physical or informational data and converting it into sound somehow.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: The simplest form of this would be, say, taking radio waves like the rings of Saturn or something, and 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 converting that down into frequencies that you can hear. That's the very simplest form of data sonification. Um, but in our day-to-day lives, for those of us who are hearing and seeing, we we use what we see and what we hear together all the time. Our brains are wired
0: mm-hmm. to yeah. take
1: whatever senses we have and integrate that all into a model of our reality around us
0: perception of reality yeah yeah Yeah.
1: and so but we don't yet do that with scientific data we just take more and more screens and more and more plots (laughs) and pages and pages of squiggly lines that you have to flip back and forth to Uh, understand or like or like densely uh packed visual displays that just are super overwhelming at some point you can't take in any more visual data And I think at that point we actually have extra channels of perception available to us
0: with our so much more dense than than text. You know, if if you think about the spoken voice, yeah, we use that to communicate, but it's so low density compared to other information that we get uh, from our ears.
1: Exactly, and our brains are so good
0: at processing
1: that sound. I mean, when you listen to music. There are like five or six different places in the brain that that music gets pumped into and parallel processed. So you process rhythm in one place of your brain, melody in another place, language in another place, harmonics mm-hmm. in another place. And the brain just, it farms it all out, processes mm-hmm. all these different things in all different ways, and then connects it into memory and uh, you know, in other, other places to, mm-hmm. c- to give it meaning and to like attach it to emotions. And that's such right. a complex process, and it happens all day, every day with us, and we're not even realizing it.
0: Hmm. Um, so possibly yeah. the 21st century is all about an au- au- audio <laughs> revolution, whereas the 20th century was all about a visual revolution.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or just a way like... So I guess w- what I'm interested in is... Making it possible for people to use music truly, like in a a truly different way, like more like what it was in the medieval times, where music was um, instrumental and voice music was the only audible way to mimic the music of the spheres and the music of the human condition. Which were two yeah. types of music that were inaudible. And If and, I recall
0: my music history, they called it uh, Musica Universalis, Musica Humana, or something like that. And yes. Musica Instrumentalis, or something like yes, that. Yes, so exactly. So, so, audible music is, is a reflection of the human reality and then the deeper underlying cosmic reality of the physical
1: world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that was really it. Music wasn't entertainment, it wasn't art. In fact, Mm. music was one of the scientists, sciences. Mm -hmm. It was part of the quadrivium. There was arithmetic, Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: uh, astronomy, Mm -hmm. uh, geometry, and music. And those four things comprised the scientific quadrivium. Those were the tools for our understanding. Mm. So Mm. let's see. um, Arithmetic is number. Geometry is number in space. Astronomy was number in time. Hmm. And music is, or no, music is number in time and astronomy is, is number in space and time. And Hmm. those, it was just four different ways of, of, of understanding number and quantifying things. Yeah. yeah, Quantifying Hmm. the world.
0: You know, it's interesting to, yeah, yeah, to look at that history of, of music, the, the world we live in that you described earlier, um, where, uh, music is commodified as a celebration of, of self essentially, or of, you know, uh, a persona. Um, yes. Yeah. It, and that was a what transition? I was resisting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think back to, I, I, you know, I I would point to Beethoven as the one that really insisted that it was about his personality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, and but before that, you know, certainly, uh, um, you know, it was a gradual thing that unfolded over centuries. But it's sort of accepted that in the medieval period, particularly before the Renaissance. Yeah, music was didactic. It was there to instruct. <laughs> yeah, know, and to, yeah. And, and that and, was uh, the yeah. worldview
1: that Kepler had. Uh, yeah. And it actually started shifting right then. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, Beethoven was a couple, uh, couple hundred years
2: after Kepler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. okay, but actually so, Bach's
1: yeah. music was, was also based on the principles, the same principles as Kepler's work,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which people mm-hmm. don't really How don't
0: would really you describe know. that? Yeah. What, what do you mean when you say that?
1: Um, just understanding harmonic relationships as, and harmonic progression as a mathematical expression as, as a, if you look at the mathematics of Bach's work, Mm -hmm. um, and the circle fifths and the Mm -hmm. well-tempered clavier and the, the theory that underlies the work of Bach is the same harmonic theory that kepler used to discover the way that the planets move
0: Hmm. Hmm. um it it, as i understand it that you know during Bach's time they were really wrestling with getting away from uh the temperaments that they used at the time that were more closely related to the harmonic series and they were developing temperaments that allowed you to modulate further afield from the original key and
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah, all but of that, that, that science that was, was
0: the... so related to what Bach, you know, the reason he yes. wrote Well with Temper Clavier is to prove that you could play in all the keys.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm. Wonderful. So, what are you doing now? Like, wh- where has all of this taken you, and where are you headed? Describe your <laughs> describe your creative life at the moment. You know, what are you what are you doing? What are you up to?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pandemicating.
0: Yeah. um how has that affected your work have you um been able to find more focus or or less focus or how's that how's been treating you
1: i have taken a year of rest
2: Mm.
1: you know Uh i i've taken a sabbatical in a way and i've been reading and studying you know i've spent a lot of 2020 learning about myself and my brain Mm. things that i you know i was i uh learning about my my neurodivergence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i've been learning about racism Mm -hmm. and systemic racism and i've been learning about um community building
2: yeah um yeah
1: in and and uh, I've been learning, I've, I've really, I've had an opportunity and time to just be in a, when space, this is the first time in my adult life that I've been in one place for more than three weeks. Mm. And I've been here now in my studio here for, um, for since February, mm. lockdown. And I love the lockdown, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and I've just given myself permission to uh, you know there was a big flurry of activity on Concordia last year uh-huh. i i i had a sense that if i was going to do what i wanted to do in terms of bringing people together to you know s- experiment with prototyping and i was going to need to do it in 2019 i just i just knew that in t- in instinctively uh- i don't know why uh- but i knew so i i just quit everything and devoted 2019 to uh thinking about Concordia which culminated in three-month residency here in Portland with a bunch of people that I invited to think about to think about the project and experiment and hmm. right hmm. and so 2019 was a was a really push 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 on Concordia year hmm. and 2020 has been really a reflection just a time for reflecting on all of it
2: hmm.
1: and um not trying to jump right in and figure out what's next immediately, just giving myself time to try and digest what I learned from 2019
0: <laughs> right. and
1: from my whole entire life. And also really to look at, at society and think about what's happening in our world right now and how um, how will Concordia address these hmm. I mean, really, to think at the same level of what started it all, you know? Yeah. How how could I? How can I help to build a world where people can play a musical instrument and understand their oneness?
2: Mm.
1: I've been thinking about oneness. I've been thinking a lot about oneness and how, you know, the problems in the world right now all est- essentially stem from our failure to recognize our oneness. Mm. And since Concordia really is all about uh, allowing people to experience their oneness, oneness with creation, and oneness with each other, and oneness with themselves, and oneness with the divine—that's what Concordia is for. Mm-hmm. I know that it, there's a role for it to play. It's still very deeply unfunded, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and also um. right before the pandemic, I was I was accepted. I was awarded a fellowship in New Zealand to come to New Zealand and build Concordia there. Oh, beautiful! And then New Zealand shut down. Right. And it's still shut down. So my my visa application is in. It's a three-year government impact global impact visa. It's called. Um, There's no no direct funding associated with it, but yeah. So I'm I've decided I've decided that I'm gonna wait till I get to New Zealand to. Take the next formal steps in in creating Concordia this doesn't mm. mean I'm not thinking about it, but it's now gone back da- back into more of a background thinking process. I've been asked to give a couple of talks about it, so I gave a keynote address
2: mm-hmm.
1: a couple weeks ago uh, at the uh, Audio Developers Conference, for example, about Concordia. So I'm still thinking about it, but I'm not. I haven't been pushing on it at all this year, right? Um, and I've been doing some music production. I'm working on, I work with Baha'i artists who set the Baha'i texts to music. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's just straight up music, music production and composition and arrangement and mixing. So I've been doing a little bit of that, but mostly I've been, mostly I've been resting, trying to figure out what it means to prepare for this next phase in our collective
2: Development. yeah I think it's.
1: I think it's actually going to involve some pretty severe collapses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been trying to prepare for that, and really like trans, transform into a war- a life where I'm, I'm mainly in one place. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm, cooking for myself. I'm I'm you know. Mm-hmm. Responsible for my own preparation mm-hmm. for emergencies. We went through some fires, some pretty intense fires that nearly
2: mm-hmm.
1: nearly engulfed us, uh, as you're probably also aware. Yeah. So there's been that. You know, 2020 has been a really interesting year of yeah. stopping. Mm-hmm. I've just really, truly really been enjoying the stopping mm. um, and allowing myself to stop. little bit and reflect Mm. so so in my life it's been a year of reflection Mm. mainly
0: well kelly it's a delight to have you thank you so much for taking time and uh speaking with us and i can't wait to see what happens when you make your way to new zealand and 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 continue working on your project (laughs) fantastic
1: thank you thank you my pleasure thanks for inviting
0: me to talk about
2: these things (laughs) all right 52 Sketches Podcast is a product of 52 Sketches, makers of earlywords.io, daily, private, stream of consciousness writing to clear your mind and unlock your creativity.
0: And now, music from our guest, Kelly Snook. The track is Third Nature by Imperial Mathematicians.